Well, Friday, my day off, I conveniently managed to break a couple ribs. I I say conveniently because that caused me to be able to do nothing but lie in bed, and I finished still standing. I had heard that Tom Driesen wrote it, and my buddy Sean had uh, kind of said, hey, did you hear this is out? And I said, wow, go to Amazon, get a copy. And of course, Amazon being Amazon, it was here the next day. So I gave you a link on Raleigh.net to that. And uh, if you want to get a copy, I think if you're unsure now, you will be sure within the next hour, I do believe. Still standing, my journey from streets and saloons to the stage in Sinatra, Tom Driesen. And uh, whether you're from Illinois or the Environs or whether you're just uh, like to laugh or, and by the way, that was the only downside of the book. When you're breaking ribs, you don't want to read something that makes you laugh. And there were a few times where it was very hard to control that. But if you're a Sinatra fan, of course, well, then you know Tom. Or maybe you watch television. It's almost impossible that you don't. So, Tom, welcome to WGN Radio. Did you have to break two ribs to read my book? <laughs> you know, I was oh I was already reading it to begin with because it, it came last week. But when the, when the ribs broke and I could do nothing else, I said, this is the perfect time to read this book. And it is, it was a real surprise. And I say that not because I didn't expect it to be good and compelling, which it is, but this is really an intimate look at somebody who rose from situations that other people might use to explain why they were victims really to the top and all along the way you recognized you were blessed at every step of the way i i said earlier you went from harvey to hollywood and didn't lose yourself along the way and you didn't it's a great book oh thank you so much i really appreciate that uh yeah you know i'm a motivation speaker i'm a stand-up comedian first last and always that's who i am a stand-up comedian when i found that i found out why i i believe i was put on this planet but i do give motivation talks because i read literally you know, maybe hundreds of books on the powers of mind when I was in the service and stuff like that. And one of the things that I talk to students about is don't let them talk you into being a victim. You're a victor. You were born a winner. You know, and 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 throughout your, you know, my life, I had every excuse imaginable to not be a success, uh, except that I didn't want that to happen, and I wouldn't allow that to happen. That let my past dictate my future you know and uh you know i, I like I've, al- I've always believed that life is uh you know 10 percent of what happens to you but 90 percent of how you react to it you know so uh, i'm glad you found that out in the book and, and mm-hmm. yeah that i won't i won't let myself be a victim and nor should anyone you know no you you prove it uh, page after page in this book and uh to say the least it was uh it was not only rough growing up in harvey but you were a cubs fan in harvey on top of it so uh, <laughs> You certainly. In those days, there were all Sox fans in my neighborhood, but I didn't know. When I was five years old, I was listening to Cub games on the radio because my dad was a Cub fan. So I'd, listen, I'd hear it on the radio, you know, and I became a Cub fan at five and six years old. But I didn't realize I was in enemy territory. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, by the time I was eight years old, I could take a punch. You know, White Sox fans hated yeah. Cub fans. <laughs> and still do, really. And yes. I thought that was interesting because you had so many wonderful jokes about uh, about the Cubs and the White Sox also of, of their lackluster uh, showings. And then, of course, uh, you lived to see the Cubs prove everybody wrong and win a series. It only took 108 years. Yeah, that you was know, all. Years, yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, and the irony, the irony is Jerry Reinsdorf is a real good friend of mine. We have dinner at, in, in Chicago at Gibson's all the time, and I love Jerry. He's a wonderful guy, great sense of humor. And uh, he knows I'm a Cub fan, but he teases me all the time. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a little bit different, but I remember when I was a kid, 
and, the, and even when I came out of the service, there were bars on the south side of Chicago, White Sox bars that if you were a Cub fan, you didn't dare go in there, you know. And and, and even I tell you something interesting. Mike Downey, who used to write for the Chicago Tribune, is a good friend of mine. He called me when the looked like the White Sox were going to play St. Louis in the World Series, and he said if the Cubs, if the White Sox play the St. Louis Cardinals, who are allegedly the Cubs' rivals. If they play the Cardinals, who will Cub fans root for, White Sox or for Cardinals? I said, no doubt the Cardinals. They yeah. would not want the White Sox to right. win. But I'm not that avid. You know, I, I would root for any Chicago team. You know. Well, I love that joke you sold early on. Did you get 100 bucks for it? About uh, no, if the... A charity, the Sports Illustrated gave me $100 to donate to my favorite charity okay. if, if, uh, for the best sports joke of the year. That was back in the day when the Cubs and the White Sox were always in, in, like, in their last place. And I said, I, my prayer when I was a kid growing up, because the Cubs and White Sox were so bad, my prayer growing up that uh, I used to pray that the Cubs and White Sox would merge so Chicago would only have one bad team. That's so funny. <laughs> now, I, I gotta say, before I started to read the book, and be, be, when it was still okay to laugh for me, uh, I had uh, seen some of your routines online, and there's one line that I still laugh to this minute every time I think about it, and that was your argument that, that yes, man's best friend, a dog, loves you more than your wife, and you had a lit test and it was the funniest damn thing i ever heard thank you yeah i say you know my buddy you know uh, my my buddy said uh, you know that his wife is his best friend i said no a dog is a man's best friend he said my wife is my best friend i said put your wife and your dog in the trunk of your car leave them there for an hour open the trunk see which one is happy to see you <laughs> it's so it's so true absolutely <laughs> so see I, you're a philosopher on top of everything else just yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's something that came across in the book. In many ways, you uh, you are a philosopher, and you got to see uh, both sides of life, uh, and uh, on stage and behind the stage, and your experiences are just uh, just priceless. Now, it also surprised me, didn't surprise me, by the way, that here you are in Harvey with not a whole lot of opportunity, and although you live near the Dells, so I got to tell you, I was when I first heard that, I said, oh man, he lived in the Dells neighborhood, so I thought that was really neat, but, uh, you know, going into the service and all all that that was you know almost an upgrade for most folks in your situation but to come back do some labor jobs i got that but i was astounded that you became like the number one life insurance salesman well that it, it, actually not number one life insurance salesman. when i came out of the service i went in the navy when i was 17 i was a high school dropout at 16 because i had eight brothers and sisters we were raggedy poor we lived in a shack in harvey you know, uh, a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. If a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. If you had holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in it, you know. And uh, and, and none of this, uh, you know, I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. And none of this do I regret. But I dropped out of high school my sophomore year. Um, you know, you're going to school, and high school kids are dressing nice, and they got cars and everything. I was a raggedy kid with holes in my shoes, and and, and sometimes embarrassed to go to school. At age 17, I went in the Navy and got a high school diploma from the Navy. And then I went to junior college nights when I came out studying political science and and uh, taking some other courses. But I was wandering aimlessly. I did not know what it is I wanted to do in life. You know, I, I kept going from job to job to job. I, I, I was a private detective for a while. I was always a bartender, in the, in, especially in the wintertime. I worked construction. And in the wintertime, when you couldn't work construction in Chicago, I would tend bar, you know. And, um, 
I, you know, I, I just I ended up working on a loading dock. I was a teamster loading trucks at Jones Motor, and then after a while, I dropped my cart and became a foreman. And so I did, but every job I did, I did well at, but I, I felt so unfulfilled. And finally, a friend talked me into selling life insurance for Columbus Mutual, and I was real good at it. I was in a civic group at that time called the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce, and I had a lot of outreach there in the community. And uh, and I, I, the first year, I became a member of the Million Dollar Roundtable, and the second year, I quit and went into show business. Yeah. You know, I, I, I sold a lot of life insurance the first year, and halfway through the second year, I went into show business, and the president of Columbus Mutual flew into Chicago and said, I've never done this, never done this for any of our agents, but I can't believe you're leaving this wonderful business where you've got a great foundation to go into such a precarious business as show business, you know, but I had the bug bad, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, and of course, what I got from the book was that the the real impetus to even be asked to sell life insurance, you had the gift of gab, and you were great with people. And so you had all the makings of being in show business that were actually the skills that would pay off in trying to sell people insurance. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, though. The, uh, Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. We met yeah. in the JCs. Uh, and we wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor, a concept that we had, get the kids laughing, play some music, and then uh, plant the, the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. And in those days, they weren't teaching drug education at a high school or college level, let alone at an elementary school level. And... You know, so one day a little eighth grade girl, we used to, Tim and I used to make the kids laugh. One day a little eighth grade girl leaving the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before in America. And so we decided, hey, let's try that. We start writing what we thought was material. We recruited a good buddy of mine named Dickie Owings, a guy that I've known since childhood. And he was just a funny guy and a, and a good writer. And we recruited him to help us. And we ended up going... Uh, there were no comedy clubs in those days. So, uh, you know, we ended up going, worked all black clubs on the north, in the north side of, uh, south side of Chicago. And, um, and we worked all white nightclubs too later on, but what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, black owned, black operated nightclubs. But the first night we ever went on stage in a little jazz club, we followed this jazz group. We started out and something I had written got a laugh. And I remember like it was yesterday, 51 years ago this was, it was like an epiphany that, that got a laugh and my whole being went, oh yeah, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. I want to be a stand-up comedian. And um, to be honest with you, Riley, I, well, you know, you read the book. I couldn't sleep all that night. It was a Friday night. And I, and I woke up in, uh, Saturday morning. I, I mean, I got up Saturday morning and I ran down to Ascension Church where I had been an altar boy in Harvey and where, where I went to church every Sunday. And I prayed. I said, God, I now know what I want. I've been wandering aimlessly. If you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do charity work and all that stuff, you know, make all the promises. That was 51 years ago, but that was September 1969 that I got on my knees in that church. September 2019, 50 years later, I went back to that same church and I spoke, I gave the sermon on Sunday Mass called The Power of Prayer. And I told the congregation 50 years ago on this date, I knelt right over there and asked God, let me make my living as a stand-up comedian, and I'll do charity work, I'll do everything. Well, God kept his promise, and I kept mine, and that was 50 years ago. And do prayers work? Yes, they do, you know. 
Oh, absolutely they do. I, I think increasingly we're starting to see scientific evidence that of that as well, but the anecdotal evidence is just overwhelming. Still Standing is the book, My Journey from the Streets and sal- Saloons to the Stage in Sinatra, Tom Dreesen, who is my guest. And uh, you're from Chicago, you probably know Tom. Certainly you know of him. Got any questions, any comments? Give us a call, 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E on WGN Radio. Roll around heaven all day. WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James. Of course, that's Frankie Lane, another Chicago boy. Lucky old son. Yeah, 1949, Mercury number one, eight weeks. And it was 71 years ago today it hit the number one spot on the Billboard charts. Yeah, takes me right back to Chicago. As does Tom Dreesen, standing, st- still standing, a terrific read. And I've got a link on Raleigh.net to the book. And I said, uh, you got any questions? And of course, I knew that would open the floodgates. So let's talk to Rick in Chicago. Welcome to WGN Radio. Hi, Raleigh. Very nice to talk to you. Thanks. Um, my name is Rick, and uh, I'm retired. I'm 80, 81 years old. But uh, back in the day, for 35 years, I was a drummer in Chicago, and uh, I played in show bands. And in 1970, I was with the first band. We opened up the Blue Max, uh, the Regency Hyatt House, the showroom in Rosemont. And one of the acts that we, or the opening acts we had, and I remember it was Tim and Tom. And I can't remember who they opened for exactly because I know that people mentioned that they enjoyed Tim and Tom better than they did the main act. <laughs> and I think I think they came in a couple of times. They were opening act a couple of times. And I just wanted to say hello to Tom and see if he remembered the Blue Max, the Regency Hyatt House. This would have been 1970 uh, or the beginning of 1971. So that was pretty early in their career, I think. Yeah, yeah Rick, I do remember the Blue Max. And and we opened for the Beatles, and, I, and people said that they they liked us better than the Beatles. I remember <laughs> that. <laughs> no, Rick, I think I, I do remember the Blue Max. It was a great I showroom. They were. It was a great showroom, and a guy named Monroe later became the uh, maitre d' there. He used to be the maitre d' at, at Mr. Kelly's. Uh, Mon- Monroe, I think Alfenbein was his name. I never Alfenbein, Monroe Alfenbein, right? And Peter was his assistant. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great. Sure. In those days, you know, Raleigh, there were so many rooms like that in Chicago. You know, there, there weren't comedy yeah. clubs in Chicago, so you had to work nightclubs, you know, like at Mr. Kelly's or like the Blue Max and, uh, and uh, you know, rooms like that. It, it, it was where there would be a singer and a comedian or a comedian and a, and a singer. It was, it was a great era. This is a great era. Yes, absolutely. All right, Rick. It was, I remember one of the other fellows was Billy Falbo used to come in there. He was an old Chicago comedian, too. Great, but, great comedian, um, yeah. You guys were fresh. You guys were fresh and different. And uh, I remember you like it was just yesterday. That was a few years ago. So I'm glad that you did very well. And, and uh, uh, I know that Tim went on, too, then for WKRP after that, and things opened up for you guys. And, uh, yeah, we you, stayed together six years, yeah. 
Thank yeah. you so much, Rick. And Rick, don't somebody said they said you bought a dozen. You're going to buy a dozen copies of my book to give away for Christmas. Don't do that. Six is fine. Yeah, six is fine. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, the 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 Tim and Tom thing is so interesting because uh, for people who lived in that era, we remember that that was a gutsy thing to do because racial tensions were pretty high. So to say we're going to be a black and white comedy team uh what made you think that would go over well you know both of us you know were young and we were uh, you know energetic and immediately we thought there had never been a black white comedy team before and i always like to be the first i always uh, that even in later on i was i did an album in front of an all black audience no white comedian had ever done that before i did it and actually in harvey after the team split up but it, because no white guy had ever done an album in front of an all black audience and it always annoyed me cuz i used to work black clubs all the time and white people would come up to me and say do black people laugh at your And my line always has been, "What color is laughter? What's the color of laughter?" You know, I, you know, so anyhow, so that's why I went out and did the album in front of an all-black audience. Um, uh, So whenever a white person would come up and say, "Do black people laugh at your material?" I'd pull out a CD and say, "Give me twelve ninety-nine, and you can find out for yourself." But, you know, you're right. The era of 60, when we went on stage the first time was September of 1969. You didn't see a black guy and a white guy walking down the street together, let alone on the stage together. And it, it was, um, and if you remember, those who remember that era, you're too young, Raleigh. But yes. there were, um, you know, there were riots all over America, race riots all over America. And Harvey had one of the biggest riots in the country, yeah. right in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And, and the students were protesting the Vietnam War. You know, I just got out of the service. Tim just got out of college. And America was in turmoil. And we went everywhere, the, and here we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. Anywhere there was racial tension, we went there, not to preach, to make them laugh in colleges and high schools. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did the county jail three times in one year. <laughs> Anywhere there was racial tension, we went there to make them laugh, make people laugh. You know, it's hilarious. Uh, it truly, it really is hilarious. And uh, what's uh, interesting about that is, like you say, you were young guys and all that, and you uh, you almost didn't know enough to say, well, this won't work. And uh, it did. It absolutely did. And there's a lot about that in Still Standing. And uh, one hilarious joke that uh, that Tom Driesen wrote. And at first, Tim had chastised him for that. And uh, well, we're going to get to that story and a lot more your calls as well 888-876-5593 that's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E on WGN Radio WGN Radio I'm Raleigh James that's Nappy Brown don't be angry 1955 on Savoy got a number two on the R&B charts 25 on the pop charts and if we were still around he'd be 91 years old today died in his sleep sadly September 2000 and that was his first and probably biggest hit, Don't Be Angry. All right, we're talking with Tom Dreesen. Still Standing is the book. It's just out. And like I say, I ordered it on Amazon, got it the next day. I've got a link at raleigh.net to it. It is a great read. If you like comedy, who doesn't? If you like some of the biggest named entertainers, and of course we'll get to Frank Sinatra, you know that. Tom toured with him for 14 years. Or just want to read about a life well lived from beginnings that were, well, beyond humble, to say the least. It's all in there and a lot more. We'll also find out what happened at the comedy club because everybody who goes into that gig and gets paid today owes a debt of gratitude to Tom in many ways. But I opened the lines, and that's, uh, of course, 888 
800-876-5593. And that brings us Mary from Chicago. Welcome to WGN Radio. You're on with Tom, Mary. Oh, hi. Well, Riley, sorry to hear about your boo-boo. But, oh, thanks. Uh, you're a tough cookie. I don't have to worry about you, right? No, I don't think so. Oh, oh good. Take care. And Tom, how, how perfect is Tom on a Columbus Day? Because I I can't help but thinking about um, Sinatra so much lately with everything, the way the world has been for so long. I mean, couldn't you imagine if it's almost like, we need Sinatra here to fix this place up. He'd be like, what's going on? Hello? Yeah, yeah. No question about it. In fact, when they tore that statue down or took the statue down to Columbus, I thought about him that day. I said, if he was alive, he would be saying to me, Tommy, Tommy, what's going on in Chicago? You know, where are those guys at in Chicago that let that happen? Like, we got to go um, bring Jilly with us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. He, he, I, I, would have, I know what his response would have been to that. For, for those who don't know, Jilly Rizzo was Frank's bodyguard for years and years and years, his real good buddy. And, uh, and uh, Frank had this strange sense of humor. You know, Jilly had one eye, a glass eye. He's a tough guy. I think he got it knocked out in a fight. And, of course, Sammy Davis Jr. had a glass eye. So one Christmas, Frank bought a set of binoculars, sawed it in half, and sent one to Jilly and one to Sammy. (laughs) That's great. That's a wonderful story. Yes, you do. It's great, Mary, and I'm so glad you called. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember I did time in Miami, among other cities, and Jilly's Yen across the street from the Fountain Blue was just the the boat to be all boats. You know, some people had a houseboat. He he had like the entire condominium, it looked like, on the water. Yeah, he was a character. He was a street guy, you know, like I always say that about myself. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. I grew up on the streets, and Jilly and I connected on that level, you know. Uh, you know, he tried to hustle me a couple times, but but I, I knew where he was coming from. You know, but we ended oh, up sure. having just a great friendship. You know, well, that comes out in the book too, and that's so interesting because uh, there's no doubt he was a tough guy, but that doesn't mean that you're not a good guy. And in fact, it also comes out throughout the book that when you really talk about integrity and honor, many of the people who at a distance might seem to be dishonorable characters actually had more character than some of the most pious out there. I have met more educated fools in my life than I have uneducated fools. Yeah. You know, um, it seems like the more education someone got, that the less common sense they got sometimes. You know, and I'd rather, I'd rather deal with somebody who has common sense rather than a great education, you know. Yeah. I, I, especially today, because I think that our kids are coming out of colleges with... Um, I, th- I, I read somewhere that, that those who graduated from grade school at the turn of the century, right. had a better education uh, overall than college grads today. Absolutely. Because, I mean, well, you see it when they, they interview kids. My, yeah. my biggest, I've worked, you know, shows on college campuses, and I talk to college students all the time. I'm stunned by how little they know about history. I'm, I'm stunned how little they know about World War II. That no, they know nothing about it. If you ask them about it, they don't realize that had the men and women, and I'm going to get on a soapbox here for a minute, forgive me, I'm an XGI, but the, the men and women of that era, if it wasn't for them, we'd be in concentration camps. There's no doubt what Adolf Hitler had in mind for this country. There's no doubt what Imperial Japan had in mind for this country. You know, uh, and there would be no Chicago Cubs, no you know Chicago White Sox or Chicago Bulls if it wasn't for the men and women of that era. 
uh, you know, when they were 17, those young guys, 17 and 18 years old, if you ask a young kid today, do you know anything about Guadalcanal or Macon mm-hmm. Island, or do you know anything about Iwo Jima or the Battle of the Boats? They had no knowledge whatsoever, but if it wasn't for those places and those men and women, uh, they wouldn't have the freedoms that they have today. I agree wholeheartedly, and what's really frightening to me now, because the government halls of indoctrination, known as the public schools, uh, that teach you how to think uh, instead, of, uh, teach you what to think instead of how to think. I was reading just today articles that were interviewing college students, almost all of whom were thinking that socialism was a good thing, that communism worked, and their their rhetoric. When you listen to this, it's like, uh, did did you miss history? Did you, you know, did they ever teach you anything about world? War two or before, and so it is. Uh, you know, we're considered fossils, I know, but it is alarming uh, the path we're uh, we're walking. But uh, I uh, we could go on with this all night. And Judy wants to uh, say hello. So welcome to WGN Radio, Judy. Hi there. I'd like to tell you about the first time I met Tim. <laughs> I went to a gathering for the JCs, and he's going to recognize my voice right away. Yeah, <laughs> I went to a gathering for the JCs, and uh, and I want and I wanted to meet Tim and uh, you know really bad, and everybody was crowded around him, and I finally got in there, and I said, "Aren't you part of that comedy team?" Tim and Tommy said, "Yeah, yeah. How do you do? Your name?" And I said, "I'm so excited to meet you." I said, "Are you Tim or Tom?" Oh. He said, I'm Tim. I said, God, it's so great to meet you. And Tommy comes walking up and said, Timmy, have you met my sister Judy? Oh, <laughs> Timmy said, oh, there's more than one comedian in this family. <laughs> I recognize the voice, but that is my sister Judy. <laughs> I have to stand on a soapbox for my brother because I want you to know, as one of the little children, I was five years younger than him. There was always laughter in our house, always laughter when he was home. He, he made he made fun for us. He, he created games for us kids to play, and we tormented our father to death over it. But, um, he, he was so creative even back then, and I think at that point he was only like 15, 16, and he was always coming up with stuff for us to do and laugh, and we just... We cried and cried when he went to the Navy because we missed that kind of laughter in the house. But there's my soapbox, honey. Um, I just want you to know I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And uh, I want you to know that you're, you're in our prayers every day. Well, thank you very much, and you too. That, you know, Raleigh, this is this is uh, you know. My, I, I remember the day she was born. They brought her home. You know, yeah. and and I always, you know, I, I hate brothers and sisters, but I always say, you know, I, and I think I said in my book, this thing about yes. sibling rivalry that you know, when when you were the baby, the family, and then the new baby came, that you had this rivalry. I never had that with this girl. This is I, I've loved that girl since the first day I saw her, and, and nothing changed in all those years. Yeah. Says, be careful you know, what you say, Margie might be listening. I think she's. Yeah. Been, uh, <laughs> I, I know the audience is going for god's sake get them both no absolutely <laughs> not this is this is just great absolutely great judy thank you so much for calling thank you for letting me call tommy love you love you too Talk sweetheart. all right Bye-bye. thank you so i don't think you're related to karen but she is from harvey so maybe you are welcome to wgn radio hello hi hi Kate. thanks for taking the call um Tommy, there's a street named after you here in Harvey uh, by the hospital. I'm heading there now for the night shift. So I was wondering how long that street, when, when was it named? 
It was named in August 22nd, 1992, and I used to sell newspapers on that corner. And there's a great story in the book about that, that when I was eight years old, I was selling newspapers, and all the cars on Harvey were blowing horns, and people were coming out of everywhere, and thousands of people blowing horns, and Harvey was a thriving metropolis in those days. And I asked one of the elders, what's going on? They said, it's Lou Bedreau Day. And, and they explained to me, Lou Bedreau's from Harvey, and he, uh, uh, you know, he played shortstop for the Cleveland Indians. At age 24, he managed the Cleveland Indians to a pennant and the World Series, and he's from Harvey. And, and I went down to the, the corner, I sold all my papers, right there on 155th Street where the post office was in the Elks Club and Lubadro came out of the Elks Club and people cheered and, and I was so excited someone from Harvey was famous and they they took Lubadro down to Thornton Field and I walked home and I was thinking that day like little boys do gosh somebody from Harvey Illinois is famous and like a little boys do I start fantasizing that wow maybe one day they'd have a parade for me in the band and all that and you know little boys dream that August 22nd 19, 1992 I went back to that same corner in that street, Dreesen Street, and the guy who introduced me to the crowd was Lou Bedreau. Wow. Oh, <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm about a block away from it right now. Good um, deal. And what, I do have a question. Did you perform at the one of the first Chicago Fest, the one at Navy Pier under Mayor Byrne? Yes, I did. I performed. Yeah, I, okay. I did do that. Yeah. And by the way, thank you for what you do. You work at the hospital. Yes. I, I don't know if you folks get enough thanks for all you've done, especially during the COVID crisis. Oh you, yes. You, you, you people in the medical profession are just marvelous, just wonderful folks. Thank you for what oh, you do. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And appreciate th- that. And thanks for calling, Karen, and for listening. I appreciate both. Yeah, I've just started listening to your, your show. I love it. Thanks. Terrific. All right. So call okay. me again. Yeah, it is. It is such a wonderful read, and uh, if you uh, if you want to get in here, I'll try not to hog Tom. But uh, having read still standing, yeah, there's a couple things I wanted to go over. But as I say, room for you eight 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 seven six five five nine three. That's eighty eight eighty eight R O L L Y E. And there's a link at Raleigh dot net R O L L Y E dot N E T right on the homepage to still standing. You're just gonna love it. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. Something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give. WGN Radio. Yes, of course, it's Sammy Davis Jr. It was actually his last hit on reprise in 1968. Got to number 11 on the pop chart. 54 years ago tonight in 1966, Sammy was making a cameo appearance on Batman. Yeah, maybe you remember it. I know you remember Tom Dreesen still standing is the current book, My Journey from the Streets and Saloons to the Stage in Sinatra. It's a great read. There's a link at Raleigh.net to the book. Yeah, the hour's going by just too quickly, but I promised I would uh, defer to you, and that takes us to Randy from Shorewood, Illinois. Welcome to WGN Radio. Hey, hey, good evening, everybody. It's an honor. Hello. Hey, Randy, what's up? Tom, I remember you on David Letterman. You were my favorite person, and Mary Tyler Moore were always my favorite. My two questions is, the very last time you were on David Letterman, you forgot to explain or tell a story about Frank Sinatra. Was that true? Yeah, you know, David... Uh, you know, they normally pre-interview you and tell, like on all the talk shows. You know, I, I did like 50 David Letterman shows. In fact, he even let me host the show when he had the shingles. And they would pre-interview you, and 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 they, they, like so you had funny stories to tell. 
And, but David yeah. would almost always not go to those questions. He would come out of the blue from everywhere. You know, uh. you always had to be on your toes when you did David Letterman show because hey, David's one of my best buddies in the whole world. But I always say, if you were in trouble on the Johnny Carson show, say like you were telling a story and it didn't go anywhere, Johnny would throw you a life jacket. He'd pull you out of it with a with a funny story. <laughs> if you were going wow. into the dumper on David's show, he'd throw you an anchor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, so I never got around to the story that I was going to tell. Yeah. That's casual. Okay, because Mary Tyler Moore, her last time she was on, Tom, she did not say a dirty joke. and She always told jokes on that show. You know, and I thought maybe both of you guys did the same thing. You know, it's some similar. Secondly, my last question, my, second, my grandma's second cousin left Chicago, and he was a drummer for Frank Sinatra for 15 years. And I keep forgetting his name because my uncle that's still alive in Carolina, he tells me it like every so often he tells me it. But he's from, they want a, tri- they want a trip to go to Vegas, and the bass player and the piano player left, and he stayed out there, and Frank Sinatra picked him up. And I, I'm totally amazed by that to this day. Wow, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Frank had something. When I was with Frank, Irv Kotler was his drummer for years, and another guy named Greg Fields uh, later. But uh, that when I was, but, you know, Frank, Frank had done a few shows wow. before I met him. You know? Yeah, uh, I toured with him fourteen yeah, years. He was in the business for sixty-two years. You know? Right, exactly. Wow. Yeah. I miss David Letterman. I really do. And it, it, it's so. I heard your voice on the radio. I go, it's got to be him. And then once you said something about Frank Sinatra, Tom, I kept calling the old number, and it didn't, they kept hanging up on me. And I heard the eight eight number. I go, please let me go through. I was like, yeah, that's so cool, Tom. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did, Randy. It's yeah, so good to talk to you. All right. Thanks God for calling. You. Appreciate it. I appreciate it all. And uh, take care, Tom. And your book is named what again, please? Still Standing. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. You can get it on Amazon.com. Yeah, and you, uh, like okay. I say, if you just remember, R-O-L-L-Y-E.N-E-T, right on the homepage is a link. Well, if anything goes fancy here, if that guy gets six books, maybe he could give me one right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, <laughs> That's thanks. Casual. Appreciate it. All right, That's good deal. God bless you, kids, man. Thanks. Bye-bye, kids. You uh, told a great story about being surprised when you did the morning show on a hip-hop station in L.A. to find out that kids, who clearly were born after Sinatra was even no longer with us, revered him. It didn't surprise me at all, so I have to share my one Frank Sinatra story, and I only have one. I was uh, working in Philadelphia, but I had to do a couple weeks in Austin, Texas, because I had taken the LBJ family to court, and I actually won the only person ever to feed them in open court. But anyway, so for two weeks, I had to do shows from Austin. Unfortunately, came Thursday, May 14th, 1998, and the news, of course, hit. Now, The way it worked is right before my show, I would do a tease with the host on before me. And so I call and I get Sid Mark on the phone, who had made an entire career out of playing Frank Sinatra records. Sure. Uh, and, Good friend of mine. Oh, there you go. And so, you know, Sid said, Raleigh, I don't care about the tease. I'm too broad. I just can't. And so, you know, and I understood. And so, but the folks from the Austin radio station thought it was a bit. They said, come on. I said, no, Frank died. And they well, so? And, you know, they, they just found this to be hilarious. And so finally I looked at him. I said, you know, there's a reason that Philadelphia is a great city and Austin is a hellhole. And so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I performed Philly many times, a spectrum with Frank yeah. and stuff like that. I'll tell you a quick question. When Frank died, Barbara called me and, and I went over the house 
and, 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 and of course, all of his friends were there and everything. And it was a sad time, and paparazzi was everywhere outside the house. As I left the house, uh, Barbara asked me to be a pallbearer. And, yeah. and then as I left the house, I was listening to a radio station, and a woman called in, and she said to the host, there's something wrong with my husband. He fought in Korea. He fought in Vietnam. She said, and at his father's funeral, he never wept. But today he came home halfway through the day, and he went into his room, and he's crying like a baby. I hear him in there sobbing. She said, because Frank Sinatra died. And she said, I don't, I don't understand. And, but the host didn't have an answer, but I understood. Yeah. If you were a true Frank Sinatra song, his music was the soundtrack of your life. You, you went steady to his music. You got married to his music. You, you got divorced to his music. And in that bar alone, you know, you know, one for my baby, you know, it's quarter yeah. to three. There's no one in the place. You yeah. get divorced to his music. You got remarried to his music. Love is love. You're the second time around. His music was a soundtrack of your life. And if you love Frank Sinatra's music and him, when he died, part of you died, you know, because a major part of your life died. And Sinatra fans knew that the next day the sun was going to shine. It just wasn't going to be as warm as it used to be. Right. It was the passing of an era, and he typified that era so well, start to finish. And he's somebody who had experienced all the highest highs, but he also experienced all the lowest lows. And yeah. it was interesting that to uh, to the folks who didn't know all the rumors about, well, he's a made man and all this crap, uh, the truth of the matter was I've never known anybody who knew him, and I did not have the pleasure of knowing him. You know, I think I met him once, but I didn't know him. But for the people I knew who did know him, they all to a person felt that he was Honorable. If I had to pick one word for Frank's uh, for Frank Sinatra, it really would be honorable. And uh, I have a feeling from reading your book that you concur with that. He was loyal to a fault with his friends. Yeah. You had to be very careful around to say you want. Gee, that's a nice painting. He'd take it yeah. off the wall and give it to you. If you said that's yeah. a beautiful watch, he'd take it off his wrist and give it to you. You had to be very careful around him um, uh, about those kind of things. He he was as good a friend as you would ever have. He he would stay with. No matter what, if you were his friend, he couldn't do enough for you. And he was loyal to a fault in many ways, you know. And, and, and was he a saint? No, but he did some saintly things in his life. And there's a lot of things you'll never know that he did because right. he didn't want you to know. And if you were in his inner circle, you, had to, you were sworn to secrecy. You did not talk about the benevolent things that he did. Uh, you know, but was he, was he flawed? All of us are flawed. But he had an enormous talent, and he had a heart as big as, as you know, Wrigley Field. And it was a great pairing for 14 years. I know you didn't take Sammy Davis Jr.'s advice when he said, don't stick with the same guy. Uh, you did for 14 years, and I think it, it very well enriched both of you, both uh, on stage and behind it. I loved the book, Tom. I hope we will meet again, and I hope everybody will read Still Standing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Raleigh. Let's do it again sometime. If I ever in Chicago, I'll come in studio. I, I, I've done so many shows at WJ, and that, that station has been so good to me through the years. I'll count on it. Thanks.